Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are in the studio with Steve Saroff. Steve enjoys wilderness, solitude, writing, photography, ceramics, entomology, and much more. But he mostly associates with who he was many years ago, a drifting runaway. When he was 14 years old, he walked alone 500 miles in the Appalachian Mountains. Then another 500 miles when he was 15, and 1,000 miles alone when he was 16. Steve left home and school when he was 17 to hitchhike across the West. When he was 19, he spent over 45 days walking alone in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Steve, thank you so much for joining me here on the Trail Less Traveled. Thanks, Mandela. Steve, I'd like to know about your childhood, the evolution of you as an adventurer. So my first question is, where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up on the East Coast, and also two years uh, when I was a little kid in Israel and then came back to the East Coast, living right outside of Washington, D.C. When I moved back to the East Coast as a little kid, both of my parents were scientists, and my father had been working in Israel in uh, the Chaim Weizmann Institute, and the Six-Day War had broken out. And my mother didn't want to live in the country at the start of the war and insisted that we move back to the United States. We came back to the U.S., and my mother got really sick and uh, uh, died when I was 10 years old. And it was kind of standard for the times. My father was a World War II vet as well as a scientist and sort of just let myself and my siblings uh, run amok in any way we wanted. I, as a kid, stuttered severely and was in uh, special ed and was always failing all my classes. And so with the combination of having uh, essentially a home where I was <laughs> had no guidance, no parents around for sometimes days at a time, weeks at a time, and going to school, which was horrific, the only places I really felt comfortable and safe were in the forests and the woods. And at that time, we were living outside of Washington, D.C. It was uh, miles and miles of hardwood forests. They hadn't yet been cut down to create all the suburbs that now define that part of Maryland. I discovered hitchhiking at the age of 14 and realized that I could go anywhere. And I, after one really particular bad couple of weeks at school and home, I just decided to hell with everything and just left. And so I hitchhiked away and started backpacking. The other thing that was kind of interesting is really close to where I grew up uh, is the Appalachian Trail. And 
the Appalachian Trail is a, just a gentle, beautiful place for a runaway to go to. I had no interest in doing what the stereotype of runaways were. I had no interest in drugs and cities and debauchery. I, I had interest in being alone and walking. And on the Appalachian Trail at that time, I think it's still that way, there were shelters about every 10 miles. And if I made it to a shelter early enough in the day, I'd always end up with a bunk space and other people would show up and they gave me food. I could just tell them I was hungry and I'd make a fire and collect firewood. And they also gave me stories and and talked to me in a way that nobody had ever done before. So being alone in the woods, sometimes there wouldn't be anybody at the shelter. So, So I would go all day long without seeing anybody which is a wonderful thing if you've just left a really bad home. And then I'd sometimes be alone at night, but sometimes there would be people, and they were more caring and better than anything I'd ever experienced before. And they all talked about long-distance backpacking, and, and they would tell me stories about the West, and they would tell me stories about other states. And so I just walked on the Appalachian Trail until it started to get cold, and Came back home, got in tremendous amount of trouble, and left again, and would come back home and leave again, and come back home and leave again until at 17, I just had enough and headed out west. Steve, you discovered hitchhiking and long distance backpacking at the age of 14. That's when you walked 500 miles in the Appalachians the first time you left home? Yeah. Then the second time, another 500 miles a year later? Yeah. Then a year later was 1,000 miles. I'm just wondering, were all these walks on the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, I wanted to. uh, It was so long ago, there was almost no books about the Appalachian Trail. There was almost nothing uh, written about it. And there were a few articles in National Geographic. There was a really wonderful book that a guy named Ed Garvey had written. There was a list of people who had hiked the entire trail, which is It was maybe like two pages long, maybe 30 or 40 people who were known to have walked the whole trail. And I decided I wanted to walk the whole Appalachian Trail. This had nothing to do with being able to tell people about it. It had nothing to do with accomplishing anything. But I just sort of thought, well, this would be really great. And there's this thing about... You know, my life now is is full of accomplishments from things that I've done that most people would say would be really hard to do, and starting companies and making money and kind of being a serial entrepreneur. But from being a runaway who was in special ed and being essentially told by all the teachers and everybody around you constantly that, that you're a complete failure. I had trouble speaking. I had trouble reading. I had complete insecurity with who I was. I thought I was stupid and ugly and awkward. And there was this thing I discovered that I could just walk all day. And while I was walking, I could think about things. And at nighttime, I would read books for company. And so instead of being somebody who was... Uh, illiterate, I discovered I had this total love affair of language and words, and and everything that's good in my life has come from trying to push myself to do stuff that's a little harder than, not a little harder, a lot harder than just taking it easy. So the goal of walking the whole trail was just sort of this impossible thing, 
And, you know, I did it again with no money, with no help. <laughs> with, with, I had I read a book that's a beautiful book. Uh, it's still in print. Uh, Colin Fletcher's The Complete Walker. It's a gorgeous book. It was a guidebook of all the gear you needed to hike through the deserts and cross rivers and, and go for uh, weeks at a time between uh, uh, where you could get food. So it was completely irrelevant for the, the gentle nature of the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail is is uh, just a beautiful walk in the park, really. But it, it was like the only thing I had read and the only thing I had been, I, I just loved hiking. I loved going to sleep at night in the forests. I loved waking up in the forests. I loved walking all day alone. I loved the people I met. And I think that's kind of why people like backpacking. At this point, Steve, you've backpacked over 2,000 miles in the Appalachian Mountains on the Appalachian Trail. I was wondering if you could paint the picture for us. Oh, God, it's so long ago. <laughs> Let me think. This was, again, when I was 14, 15, and 16, and the rest of my life sort of has eclipsed it, so it's sort of wonderful you bringing me back to childhood. But I think about those forests are really particular. It's from the southern Appalachians all the way up to New Hampshire. A lot of different sort of forests, lots of different sort of geology. I fell in love with... Uh, my whole life has been a series of love affairs of all sorts of things, but I fell in love with geology. I didn't graduate from high school, but I have a degree in geochemistry because of the rocks exposed in the Appalachians. The Appalachian Mountains are real ancient mountains. They were probably at one time much bigger than the Himalayas, but they've been worn down, and they're sort of like the molars of a great big woolly mammoth or something, and the roots of the mountains are all exposed, and you walk and you see these beautiful ancient sort of rocks, the gneisses and the strange sort of metamorphic things, and the areas of coal seams in Pennsylvania where you find fern fossils uh, underneath your feet, the forests in North Carolina and Tennessee where there's laurels and rhododendrons blooming around you, the hardwood forests, the hickories, and the white oaks of the Shenandoah, and just beautiful, beautiful forests, gentle forests. You're also we're never more than a few miles away from people if you wanted to get to them. So there was a sense of even though I was alone and backpacking and, and breaking every sort of safety rule you see these days, I was still very, very safe. So the Appalachians was a wonderful place to be as a kid and to kind of launch you out into the, into the rest of the world. You are on the trail less traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series. We are in the studio with Steve Sharoff. Steve enjoys wilderness, solitude, writing, photography, ceramics, entomology, and much more, but he mostly associates with who he was many years ago, a drifting runaway. When he was 14 years old, he walked over 500 miles of the Appalachian Trail. The next year, he did another 500 miles, and the next year, 1,000 miles. Steve, I'd like to go back before you discovered hitchhiking and backpacking when you were 12 years old. You learned Morse code and got a ham radio license. You stayed mm -hmm. awake many nights listening to distinct call signs. Please tell us a little bit about Morse code and why you were so fascinated by this type of communication. Oh, this is really neat. When I was a kid, a, a friend of my father's, a guy named Val Popoff, was a uh, ham radio operator. And my mother had died when I was 10, and uh, Val was a good friend of my mother's. And I would go over to his house sometimes and watch him use the radio, use his radios. And he enjoyed uh, talking with Morse code more than he liked 
talking uh, with voice because with Morse code, the more of the, the challenge wasn't so much chit-chat or discussion of things. It was just trying to make contact, saying essentially, I'm here, I'm here, uh, where are you? And I was in special ed, but I had no idea. I, I was actually kind of clever. I learned electronics, and I, I learned how to build electronics, and I, Val gave me an old receiver, but he gave me books on how to make a transmitter, and you can make uh, radio transmitters fairly easily. And so I made a, a transmitter that would transmit uh, Morse code, and I strung up a, an antenna to an, a great big tulip poplar tree in the backyard. And different times of the night, you have better receptions to different parts of the world. So I'd wake up in the two in the morning to be able to send calls to Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of Morse code? I mean early adventurers used it in ways of communication as far as being on a boat, trying to navigate a boat across the Atlantic, early days of Morse code. I have no idea. I'm not that old. But <laughs> the <laughs> so uh, it's a really simple alphabet. You know, I, I still know it. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da uh, means CQ. And that's when you're asking, is anybody there? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
solitude, writing, photography, ceramics, entomology, and much more. But he mostly associates with who he was many years ago, a drifting runaway. When he was 14 years old, he walked alone 500 miles in the Appalachian Mountains. Then another 500 miles when he was 15, and 1,000 miles alone when he was 16. Steve left home and school when he was 17 to hitchhike across the West. When he was 19, he spent over 45 days walking alone in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Steve, when you were 25, you worked for two years as a faculty research assistant for the Oceanography Department at Oregon State University. You spent a few months on a ship in the South Pacific. Please tell us about the study of oceanography and your time in the South Pacific. Sure. Again, this is a long time ago, but it's, it's kind of the, one of the highlights of my life. I'm glad you pulled that out to ask me about. So I had been living in Missoula with a woman who wanted to go study art, and we moved to Corvallis, Oregon, and I had to go get a job. And I knew how to fix electronics, and I knew how to write software, and uh, I had a, a degree in geology at that point, uh, even though I didn't have a high school degree, and I never thought of myself as really successful at, at anything. But I got a job at the time when I was working on computers, and this will get right to oceanography, at the time I was working on computers, it was more of a novelty. Nobody really saw the revolution that was coming. And knowing how to fix a computer was sort of a, akin to knowing how to fix a lawnmower. So I got a job in one of the first computer stores that was selling apples. They were selling a type of a, a computer called Apple IIe, and the Macintosh had just come out. I was a technician. I fixed those computers. This guy came in one day, and I fixed his computer, and we started talking about programming. And uh, I had taught myself a language called C, which at that time was a, a very odd, weird, esoteric computer language. But it became the language that created the computer revolution. Well, the guy I was talking to was a guy named Rob Holman, and he was an oceanography professor. And he was really interested in that. I knew electronics and computer stuff, and he asked if I wanted to be his assistant. He asked if I had a college degree. He didn't care what it was in. He didn't care what my grades were. My GPA for my college degree was 2.01 because I would get Fs and As and it balanced out to a C. But I had a degree and he hired me because it was sort of an interesting thing is in the world of science, the most useful people are kind of the engineers who build the analysis tools. And he was a mathematician studying uh, beach erosion. And I would invent instruments for him and write software to control those instruments. And we'd go out at low tide and set things up off of the coast around Newport, Oregon, before giant, huge storms. We had a seismograph in our, our lab in Corvallis that would pick up a huge waves crashing on the beach, and he would call his friends who lived near Newport and ask if big storms were there, and, and we'd go and set up these instruments to measure water velocities and turbidity and drink scotch and little trailers up by the beaches and talk about the mathematics of analyzing uh, wave patterns. I worked for him for two years, and then I got invited to be part of an expedition on the ship called the Wacoma, the RV Wacoma, and my skill set was fixing broken electronics and writing software, and this ship was just packed with computer gear. And the computers at the time were all big, and there wasn't much room for people. It was mostly just a ship full of instruments. All sorts of things happened on that ship. 
I can tell you a story. Do we have time? Certainly. (laughs) So so I was a polywog. I hadn't been across the equator yet. And uh, once you cross the equator, you're you're called a shellback. And I had really long hair, and I was a lot younger than everybody else on the ship. And everybody was there for a skill set, and mine was fixing computers. But you all had to do labor. And so I would operate this big winch on the back of the ship, night and four to eight in the morning. And I was on the back of the ship, which was called a fantail. And the waves started crashing over the back of the fantail. And I thought that was just normal because anytime I would ask anybody else on the ship if things were normal or not, uh, they'd tease me and they'd pile it up for all the things they're going to do to me when we cross the equator. So this ocean water is, is really hot. It's 85 degrees or something. And it's washing deeper and deeper over the back of the fantail. And it washes a shark, a great big white-tipped shark that's like seven or eight feet long over the, the railing right next to my feet. Then the shark is swimming around in the water as it drains from the fantail. And I unclip my safety harness and I race into the ship. I open up the port and I go in and all this water pours in. And the guy who was on watch was sound asleep. And I tell him there's a shark right outside the door. And he says, oh, Pollywog, it's probably just a big flying fish because they landed on the back of the ship all the time. And I said, a flying fish with great big teeth and seven feet long. And he has his cup of coffee and he walks over and he opens up the portal. And there's a shark lying on the deck, leaping around around like a, you know, like a trout snapping its teeth and he throws his coffee in there and he falls over backwards and uh, he went and tried to wake up other people to show him but the shark had washed back over the fantail. When they got me during uh, the ceremony for being coming a shellback, one of the things they, they really teased me about was that I attracted sharks. So. That's awesome. Steve, when you were going around the South Pacific, did you notice a lot of rubbish, trash, garbage in the water? No, not at all. Back then, and I don't know what it's like now, but uh, the ship I was on, we were studying ocean currents, and we were studying things related to El Nino, and, and that we had picked an area of the ocean where we were the furthest away from land that you could really be in, you know, at the equator. And there was really no currents to wash anything there. So the water was as blue and clear as just beautiful, beautiful. It was, it was a pristine beautiful place then. Steve, you have worked in many industries from computer programming, dishwashing, cattle ranch hand, copywriter, and firewood cutter. Of those jobs, you most enjoyed cutting firewood. Please tell us about the contentment, joy, and meditation you experience when cutting firewood and creating ceramic art. (laughs) Well, when you're real young, you stutter and you're kind of a dropout and you discover something you can do to make a bit of money and not have any boss, it's a beautiful thing. So I had a friend, uh, he's still around, uh, Mac Donofrio, and he had a pickup truck and a chainsaw. And we realized we could uh, be our own bosses and we could go out and uh, cut firewood, pile into the back of his pickup truck, drive into town and just say wood and sell it and not have any bosses telling us what to do or setting any hours. I'm sure we made a lot less than minimum wage, but it was wonderful. Making ceramics for me is sort of the same. I've been doing ceramics since I was in my early 20s. I haven't had the luxury of having my own studio until the last decade or so. But when you work on ceramics, it's also this very private wonderful thing where nobody's telling you what to do. There's something, again, with with somebody who is a runaway and 
has gone through special ed, you discover that you do best when you're your own boss. And maybe that's why I've started all these companies. Steve, how are Keeping Bees, setting up a ceramic studio, formulating your own glazes and computer programming all interconnected? You definitely read some of my stuff on the web. They're all related because they're very technical. You have to do things in an exact way or it doesn't work, but they all have tremendous variability in what you do. So I bought uh, 20 acres of land a while ago way up Sawmill Gulch in the heart of bear country here in Missoula, and I decided to set up an apiary and start keeping bees. And there's a lot of specific things you have to do with the bees, but the most enjoyable part was just sort of watching them. And I had to build a fence and put up an electric fence around that fence to keep the bears out. I had to learn how to take care of the bees. And, but mostly I would just get up in the morning and make a cup of coffee and go watch the bees wake up as it was getting warm and fly away. My ceramic studio, I love formulating my own ceramic glazes, and most of them turn out looking terrible, but you keep at it and you you get really nice ones. And writing software is sort of similar to all this, is that kind of the beauty of writing software is you do things and you can see what impact you write code and it either works or it doesn't work and you know right away. And so you can sit there and you can teach yourself how to keep bees. You can teach yourself ceramics. You can teach yourself how to uh, write software. And it They're all things that have tremendous amount of freedom, but you know when you've done it right. If you don't do it right, your bees all die. If you don't make the ceramic recipe right, it it just comes out looking like mud. And if you don't write the software well, the computer crashes. Steve, it's time to play a song. Can you please pick a song that reminds you or inspires you of your life's adventures? The Ballad of Spider John by Willis Allen Ramsey. Because my life has been a continual series of different sorts of love affairs and searching for sort of you listen to the song and you'll understand it. Steve, you recently drove your adventure rig that you call Mouse <laughs> up through the Yukon, through the Dempster Highway, which is 450 miles of dirt, mud, and washboards, the equivalent of driving across Montana on that type of terrain. Please tell us about your adventure rig and some pros and cons of driving versus walking. <laughs> yeah, sure. About five years ago, I had a software company that I started that I ended up getting purchased by uh, Dell Computers. I made a ton of money. And there was really nothing in my life I kind of wanted to buy. Two houses, one in the forest. I don't really consume much. Uh, uh, Clay is cheap. (laughs) The uh, ceramic studio is not an expensive expensive thing. But I had spent the day when I had sold the company going around and just a, a handful of really close friends, I gave away a large amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars that day. I surprised people. So I got back at home at about uh, three in the morning and I was drunk as a skunk by myself. And uh, I was wondering, is there anything I would like to buy? You know, it was, was money. 
I thought, well, you know, I have this old pickup truck that I use for um, car camping, for going up Forest Service roads and sleeping in the back. And I thought, you know, it would be nice to have a, like a van, a four-wheel drive van. And so I go online while I'm drunk and I start searching around and I found there's this company called Sportsmobile. And I made a decision then just to buy one of these things. You know, so I woke up the next morning and called up and ordered one and bought one. I've driven around like crazy. A year ago, I drove way up to Alaska. I spent a month by myself. This current year, I went up with my uh, girlfriend, Karen. She and I drove up through the British Columbia and up through uh, the Yukon into this place called the Dempster Highway, which she nicknamed the Dumpster Highway. <laughs> and it's a beautiful place. It's uh, 450 miles of wilderness imagine a glacier meeting, say, Scotland. It's like this tundra and this green, beautiful, beautiful uh, rolling hills going up to huge glaciated mountains with glaciers. And you only see three or four cars a day coming the other direction. You have to go about 250 miles between gas. Lots of the road is washboard and mud. You just pull over and camp when you want to. And and you end up way above the Arctic Circle, so the sun never sets. And, and at the very end of the road, there's this uh, sort of small native town, Inuvik, and we stayed there a couple hours and just turned around and, and drove back. The difference between car camping and walking is, is legion. It's a lot easier to um, drive around, but it's a lot harder to find places to hide. So when you're backpacking, you just sleep wherever you want. And when you're car camping, you have to find places where you're I don't like camping in campgrounds that much. I like just finding some desolate place off the side of the road. But way up on the Dempster Highway, it was all desolate. And so it was, it was sort of like a lazy person's backpacking trick. The Sportsmobile, you said it is the company's name? Yeah. They take a great big old Ford van and they rip the bottom out and put a four-wheel drive stuff on it. And you don't really need the four-wheel drive for any of the roads you end up driving, but you need the four-wheel drive when you're trying to find places to hide off of the roads. So on uh, old snowmobile tracks or forest service roads. Groovy. <laughs> Tell us a story about one of your adventures in Mouse, the sportsmobile adventure rig. Sure. There's an old saying that with uh, four-wheel drive, you, you end up uh, getting stuck easier because you end up in places you really shouldn't be. So relatively recently, I was driving by myself down through Nevada on the way to California, and I pulled off the interstate uh, a little bit south of Winnemucca by a place called Rye Patch, where there's a campground just to spend the night. And when I come up to the campground, there are two or three people in the campground, so I thought that was too many people. So I just kept driving on uh, what I thought was BLM land, BLM road. And I went through a fence. I had to open a, like a barbed wire gate and drove through this thing. And so there's this rye patch reservoir and there's this little trail going down to closer to where the water was. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I think I can drive my van down there. And I get out, walk down, and I wasn't really thinking straight. Some people say Steve Sarov's a smart guy. I, I can attest I'm not. I make a lot of mistakes. I drive down this thing that was so steep and narrow and soft that 
I almost didn't make it back up. But when I got down to the bottom of the thing, I realized I'm not going to be able to get back up. So I go, well, there must be another way to drive out of here. And I start walking around, and I'm realizing, no, there's no other way out. This is all like soft, loamy sand, and I didn't really sleep very well. And the next morning, I thought, well, what happens if I tip this thing over? I get it stuck, and it's a huge monster of a vehicle. But I was just barely able to to get up, and I go, boy, this is why you should not own a four-wheel drive camping van. Tell us about mosquitoes up there. Okay. So the mosquitoes up in the uh, uh, tundra are just are really bad. And a lot of people think because of global warming, they're even getting worse because they're breeding earlier. I mean, there are just clouds of mosquitoes. So when you walk around, it's not too bad. And, and if you goop yourself up with a mosquito repellent, it's not too bad. But I don't like wearing mosquito repellent, and my girlfriend didn't either. And I'd wear like a mosquito head net when I'd be outside. But inside the van, there was really no problem. But we hadn't been sleeping very well because it never gets dark. The sun doesn't set. And so we go to sleep one night, even though it's as bright out as if it was noon, and we're trying to sleep, and there's just tons of mosquitoes. And we thought they had just come in because we thought they must be waking up. So we kept killing mosquitoes and then just hiding underneath our sleeping bag. It was as if we were in a tent. When we wake up finally in the morning, we had not completely closed one of the back door even though it looked close. And we look around on the walls of the, of the, I almost said tent, the walls of the van, and there's just blood blotches everywhere. And probably, you know, 2,000 mosquitoes had come in that night. And so it sort of felt like we were backpacking then. Steve, I'd like to talk to you about the adventure of an idea. Many years ago, before everyone had a computer, you had an idea. That idea was that computers would become communication devices. You worked hard to teach yourself new programming languages while working other jobs and raising two kids. This idea has helped fund your curiosity and enthusiasm for adventure, art, and building things that work well. I feel like many people are afraid to take risks and are often discouraged by others who don't understand and embrace change. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs, inventors, and artists in this day and age? Oh, lots of advice. I usually don't even give advice, but I would probably have lots of advice. Uh, the first thing I always, I always tell people is the world's full of possibilities and just push yourself and don't let anybody tell you you can't be whatever you want to be. You know, I was in special ed. I didn't graduate from high school. It was so long ago they, they didn't even call it special ed. They just called me retarded. Everything I've learned, I've just learned because I realize I want to teach myself things and learn. And I think that anybody can do that at any time. People, if they have good ideas, they can they can turn them into, into stuff very easily if they put in a lot of work, their, their own hard work. And a lot of times people will say to me, "Is I have this, this good idea, I just don't have time to do it. And I'll ask them, I say, well, do you watch television or do you go to the bars or, or do, you, do you see movies? And if they say yes, I go, stop doing 100% of that. Really focus all your time on what you want to do and take care of yourself and study and learn and don't worry about people telling you you can't do it. But do understand that it's hard. You need to teach yourself things. You need to, to avail yourself to, to whatever tools are out there. Uh, you need to find people who are as smart or smarter than yourself to work with and just thrive. Steve, many times you have mentioned how much you enjoy solitude. 
Thousands of years ago, Pantanjali wrote in the Yoga Sutras the importance of solitude in the practice of yoga. It is said that non-contact of any sort, even mental, can bring up the ability to realize oneself. It can make your mind more one-pointed. It brings about a greater clarity in thinking. Perhaps this is why great works of the world have come up in solitude. Please reflect on why solitude is an important part of your practice. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty easy to to think about. Is that there's this beauty of I, I certainly love people. I love being around people, but almost everything that I enjoy about people is enhanced by things that I do when I'm by myself. And the people I'm the most comfortable with are the people who are also most comfortable with themselves. It's sort of like I've described it as we'll go out into the world and we'll discover things. or we'll, Some of the times those discoveries are just our, our own self-reflection. And then we'll, we come together to share what we've found. We share what we've discovered. Instead of people sort of sitting around each other going, what do we do? What do we do? Just go and do it. And usually it's doing it something by yourself, and then you come back and go, look what I found, look what I did, look what I've created. Uh, most of the things that people appreciate, if you listen to a really great song, almost always those are, are written by themselves. I have trouble imagining Dylan writing a song with a whole group of people. So, But he goes out and does something, creates this song, and then comes to the world and goes, see what I've done, listen to this. All this ceramics that you do, Mandela, and that I do, we do it really by ourselves, but we enjoy it because then we're able to share it with other people. And most real good things that are intellectual, which is sort of what defines us as human, are done in solitude, but then the enjoyment of it comes from the combination of what we've done by ourselves when we combine that with, with other people. Awesome. Steve, you've spent a lot of time in Missoula. I think you'd like this place a lot. Yeah. It's maybe your base camp. You yeah. do travel, but you end up in Missoula. Oh, yeah. Tell me about why you love Missoula so much. Why is it so special to you? Oh, it's, that's, that's, again, a, a pretty easy thing. I'll bring this up, is uh, the land area of Montana is within 1% or 2% of the land area, and maybe within 3% of California, and it's also the, about the same size as Japan. Montana has under right around 1 million people, and California has right around 40 million people. Japan has right around 100 million people. Montana is beautiful because there aren't very many people here. And the thing that I'm saying is go out, do something by yourself, and then come together and share it. Missoula is it's a little small city, and I have friends here, and I have history here, and I've raised children here, and I've started companies here. But when I want to, I can walk out into the woods or drive out of town and be by myself with no problem whatsoever. If I lived in California, I don't know how I'd find solitude. If I lived in Japan, I'd same thing. So this, what's beautiful about Montana is there aren't many people. And what's beautiful about Missoula, it's a small, dense collection of, of wonderful people. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming into the studio with me and doing this interview. Steve, I'd like to end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Okay. I thought of those. I thought of them. And it's pretty simple. 
So when I was 18 years old, I got into college and I started uh, uh, studying chemistry. And I met uh, someone who became my closest best friend for a couple of years, uh, Alex Lowe, the, the legendary mountain climber who tragically died about 15 years ago. And he just inspired me to uh, do things that I didn't know how to do and be outside a lot. And he and I liked uh, skiing together. He told me there's this really good snow down below uh, Stewart Peak. So by myself, one weekend, I walked up near Stewart Peak and then thought I'd ski down, but the snow was so deep, I couldn't get back to up to the trail, and I couldn't uh, get down to the trail that's down by uh, whatever that is, the main corridor, before dark. And I had uh, no, nothing to spend the night, but I had uh, matches with me. So I made a huge fire, and I spent the, the night awake all night next to this great big fire. And all I thought about is, I want to uh, see if I can get to town and get back to my chemistry class by 1 o'clock the next day, which would have been Monday, so I could tell Alex that I had bivouacked. And so I made a big fire, and right when it starts turning light around 8 in the morning, because it was wintertime, I slogged my way back down to, to the main corridor trail and skied out and then walked into town, and I made it back to... Um, campus and I show up at class and I'm soaking wet and I stink of smoke and I tell Alex what had happened and he says, I love bivouacking. You had a great night. So anyway, one of the things that really upsets me is when I read in the newspaper about people who get in trouble because they skied off trail or they got lost and they rely on their cell phones and they, they uh, just don't know how to take care of themselves. So one of my tips for being outside is never do anything or go anywhere without the skills or, or the tools you need to be able to take care of yourself wherever you are, no matter what happens. Like a, a pack of matches is a, a wonderful thing to have. That's one tip. Another really great tip, uh, which sort of fits with that first one, try to go find the places where there's no cell coverage. So that's a really good outdoor tip, you know. And then I think another really good tip is um, write about what you do and share it. Steve, what song would you like to end the show with? Mr. Tambourine Man by Bob Dylan, since I mentioned him earlier. That song rambles. I tend to ramble. It's also a person who's alone and kind of, you know, he's, he's got lines in there about being alone. I remember hearing that for the first time when I was hitchhiking out west, coming in on AM radio late at night from who knows where. The person let me off. The song just rang in my head, and I don't know where I slept that night, next to some fence or something. And it's just a very good wandering, drifting song. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series, which airs every Sunday evening at 6. Visit the official website to archive previous episodes, see pictures, and follow us as we record on location around the world at traillesstraveled.net. The podcast is free and available wherever you gather podcasts. Please subscribe and consider writing us a review to help this new genre of adventure radio. I'd like to thank my guest for this week. Steve enjoys wilderness, solitude, writing, photography, ceramics, entomology, and much more. But he mostly associates with who he was many years ago, a drifting runaway. When he was 14 years old, he walked alone 500 miles in the Appalachian Mountains. Then another 500 miles when he was 15, and 1,000 miles alone when he was 16. 
Steve left home and school when he was 17 to hitchhike across the West. When he was 19, he spent over 45 days walking alone in the Bob Marshall wilderness. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and I work full-time as an international adventure guide, mainly running whitewater in the Grand Canyon during the summer, in order to save money to travel and record this adventure radio series. My goal is to interview adventurers and storytellers in their natural habitat, in the most remote locations around the world, in order to bring you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. I hope these interviews inform and inspire the community to get outside, away from your technology, and start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Has Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the beautiful mountains of Missoula, Montana. My adventure tip this week is to pack your bags and attempt to live out of them for a couple days, if not a week, before you do a long expedition. That way, when you realize you forgot something, you have time to make sure it's in your bag when you actually leave the country. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, I invite you to do something for Mother Earth and to get outside. Shred the gnar, because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. G'day, mate. This is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green is a collective of farms on the eastern foothills of the Oregon Cascade Range that grow and produce the highest quality full-spectrum CBD products currently on the market. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. They also grow a variety of herbs and flowers on their farms that not only provide a direct source for some of their products, but also introduce beneficial bugs and pollinators to their land. Desert Green Hemp pride themselves on contributing to the regeneration of social, economic and environmental health on our planet. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com to check out some of their products including CBD honey, olive oil, salve, mint yarrow CBD tincture and hemp flour for smoking. My personal experience regarding CBD includes an overall feeling of calmness and relief from anxiety. A few years ago, I unfortunately encountered full body joint pain due to an Australian virus that passes from kangaroo to mosquito. CBD helped relieve inflammation and pain similar to arthritis. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, Mandela, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio.